Good evening, godless sodomites. Well, hello and welcome again to another edition of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast where today we are actually speaking with Nathan Phelps, the son of the Westboro Baptist section. Ben, are you not going to hop in, Charlie? I mean, seriously, do I have to carry everything? <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> and before, uh, let's see, one of our fans got in touch with you. That's how this got set up, right? One of our listeners. Yeah, actually, someone on Facebook, I think, had uh, had uh, written me a, a message and talked about you guys. And, and yeah, before, that's how I got in touch with you. before you got that message, had you ever heard of us? Uh, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, actually, we take that as a compliment. That's why we've okay. named ourselves the way we are. That's and... why I ask it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, when when he first mentioned it, of course, I thought of that movie, and and that maybe he was just mispronouncing it. Right, the uh, religious. He's slightly yeah. more famous than we are. Yeah, not by much. <laughs> uh, we've we've got five uh, five listeners at least. So yeah, we're catching up. Uh, so take us through take us through your uh, early life. I mean, when. In studying for this interview, uh, it turns out that Fred Phelps, who's your father, is that right? That's right. Uh-huh. Used to be a civil rights attorney back in the 60s. That's right. He was. He was fighting the good fight. He was striking down Jim Crow laws, getting settlements for people who were discriminated against on the separate but equal uh, segregation laws. Uh, right. What happened? Well, do, when you ask that question, do you mean uh, how, how did he change? Yeah. Was there a change? I guess. Is yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't see it as a change, and and and. Uh, I mean, I have to be honest. I'm a little bit puzzled when people uh, present it that way. Although I understand that you know you can look at what he did there and say, okay, he was he was uh, in favor of social change, and now he's opposed to it. But, I see. It's just a different type of social change he's fighting for now. Yeah, and and you know. It's, when he did that with the uh, so, you know the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964 and he had this wide open uh, area of the law you know there there hadn't been a lot of cases filed so there wasn't uh, a lot of uh, precedence so there was a lot of opportunity and he filed literally hundreds of lawsuits and, and made a lot of money in the process but it wasn't for you know altruistic reasons it was an opportunity to make money is what it boiled down to gotcha. he was as inclined towards prejudice against blacks as uh, as a lot of people out there. So it wasn't uh, that he was fighting the good fight or really cared about social justice and now right. uh, doesn't. It's that uh, he was an attorney and he was he was found a, a lucrative area to practice. And he was good at what he did and he really didn't care about upsetting people. So all those things are consistent with, right. with what uh, we see today. It just was an opportunity for him to do something to make money and he did. You know, he was born and raised in the Deep South in, in Meridian, Mississippi, and you know, brought with him those uh, strongly held convictions that black people were inferior, and that's what we learned growing up there. What was your childhood like growing up in that situation? Well, let, let's back it up a little bit. Uh, what is actually your standing with religion, and uh, uh, where do you stand in all of this? Well, I don't, I don't believe. You know, I, I guess the best thing to say is I'm an atheist because I don't believe that there is a God out there. 
I'm not necessarily anti-theist in the sense that I'm antagonistic toward religion. I have some pretty serious issues that I would raise with religion and religious people, uh, and that as long as they're willing to consider the possibility of a supernatural, uh, they are, practically speaking, giving support to um, organizations like my father's and you know, extremists like uh, Al-Qaeda. That's, Absolutely. That's yeah. the major problem I have with organized religion, that you know, they, it's a kind of a tacit approval to, to develop irrational, illogical uh, systems of belief and then act on them. So you're one of those new atheists. I guess. <laughs> I don't feel new, let's put it that way, okay? But now, 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 how long have you not believed in religion? I mean, uh, was this something that struck you as a child, or did it hit you more in your adult years? You know, it, it, was, a, it was a long, drawn-out process. I, I had thoughts like this when I was a child, very, you know, undeveloped, but oftentimes listening to my father's theology, I would, I would question it and you know, not, not able to really think through the nuances of the argument, but just didn't think it made sense. Take us through a little bit of those teachings. What was your childhood like? What, what exactly did he teach? Well, he is a, a Calvinist. Uh, well, actually, what I call him as a hyper-Calvinist because he kind of took Calvinism to an extreme, which is hard to do because Calvinism is a fairly extreme idea to begin with. Yeah, he and, believes uh, – I mean part of Calvinism is that there's a, a small – elect group, right, that God yeah, chose. Well, that absolute predestination is the yeah. kind of the cornerstone of it, and it says that God picks them instead of uh, us choosing God. So I'm not sure exactly then what the purpose of picketing funerals or trying to change people's mind at all is. Isn't it just uh, God's choice and not ours? Or what, what's well, the purpose of... Yeah, well, and he'll, he'll say that, that we're not, we're not out here preaching to you guys to save you. We're out here to, to do what God commands us, which is to preach. To let you know that you're damned. To what yeah, end? pretty much. You know, it's <laughs> almost like, practically speaking, it's like, you know, I'm, we're uh, somewhere our nose at you or digging it in that you're going to hell and we're not. Through no but, fault of our own or yours. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing that's so amazing about it. So, Has your dad it, ever wondered uh, why God hates the vast majority of the world where he's only going to pick a small group and then just kind of say, well, fuck you to the rest of everybody. Does he wonder about it? Uh, I I imagine he does. He he hasn't really expressed a lot of empathy for those that weren't chosen. Um, uh, What it boils down to is there's such a, an attitude of reverence toward God that we don't question him, that he's almighty and all knowing and, and uh, he does what he does and we just accept it. That's kind of the, the right. place he comes from on that. I remember being in that place, too. You just say, that's the way it is. You know, growing yeah. up Mormon, uh, if, if God was racist uh, before 1978, well, the, you know, that's just the way it was. And you got to accept that and move on. Yeah, we're, we're, after all, we're just petty humans, and how can we possibly right. understand the mind of God? Right. Which, to me, just completely begs the question, you know, then, then why bother? Why even have a Bible or a holy book that... That's supposed yeah. to direct us because there's so many of those questions pop up. Total cop out. I love how all these people who are preaching Calvinism uh, believe that they're elect. Uh, I'd love to see someone preaching Calvinism from the outside. Well, I'd actually I'm, love I'm to damned. see the letter God sent to them to say, "You are my elect." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm damned. Uh, you guys are much more lucky than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, God. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how I screwed that up, but 
Yeah, they all happen to be. What a coincidence. I'm one of the few. Yeah. And I find it even more remarkable coincidence that, that most of the ones that they think are saved happen to be born into the same family. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, heard, I heard one of them rationalizing, saying, well, even if I hadn't been born, I were born here, I would have found my way. Right. It's, just, it's all such a self-fulfilling, integrated process there. What, what about you, though? Um, if you fell away from the family, um, what if God chose you to be saved anyway? Does he really care what, what you do if he already chose you? Well, that's a good point, but then they'll argue that, you know, the Bible does say you'll know them by their fruits, so, so he didn't. If, if you're there and doing what he says, then you are um, expressing your salvation, and if you leave, then we were just deceived and you never were really saved. Gotcha. <laughs> I always love that double comment. Yeah, if you go back, then, oh, yeah, I guess you were. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what you ought to do, is just completely mess around with your family, where you keep coming back, and then you drop away and come back. They won't know which way you're coming. The thing that bothers me so much about it is that if, if they really believe that, then to me that would, would uh, cause you to tend to be even more gentle and kind-spirited to everyone on the off chance that someone you're talking to is actually one of God's elect. Right. So. Or secure in the knowledge that you're one of God's elect and, and you feel really terrible for other people who are going to be committed to an eternity in hell. Yeah, so you're going to treat them nice while they're here. Right. Uh, so um, you had doubts in childhood, uh, and it's amazing to me that this happens, but it happens fairly frequently um, that, that you're, you're immersed in this stuff from day one, and eventually you crawl out of it and find your own way. Take us through that. Yeah, well, I mean, when I left there, it was kind of, you know, I, I was of two minds. There was a part of me that believed without a doubt that what my father had taught us was true and I was going to go to hell. And, and uh, so I, I left. I, I remember specifically having the thought process that I'm going to go out, you know, live my life until I, around the year 2000, which is when he said it was approximately when God was going to come back. And then I'll deal with that at another time. You still left and, fully, fully believing you went, you're going to go to hell? Absolutely. I was convinced of it, had no doubt in my mind. And and then there was another part of me that had all of these doubts and all these questions, but was all the time thinking, yeah, but the only reason you're having these doubts and questions is because you're defying God and you're not willing to accept the reality of things. So, you know, constant turmoil. And so I kind of just avoided it for as long as I could. And then I got uh, I got married and we we got pregnant within about a month after we were married. And that was one of the major chinks in the whole process because I part of that belief system that I left with was since I left, I wasn't going to ever be able to have kids because that was a blessing from God, right? Hmm, right. So all of a sudden we're pregnant, and then I'm thinking, okay, well, this is how he's going to punish me and kill this kid. So then when my son was born, that kind of twisted things around in my mind. And then having your own children and seeing that relationship between father and, and child from the other side started raising a lot of issues as to the violent, hateful nature of of my father. So then things just kind of started coming unplugged for me. And I went into counseling and was, you know, I found a uh, psych- psychiatrist that had a theological degree and spent nine months with him reading books, trying to make sense of it all. And all throughout that process was coming up with more and more arguments in my own mind about why this none of this made sense while still attending church and presenting myself as a as a believer out there, right? 
Right. I mean, my first step was to try to salvage my belief when I was kind of falling away from the Mormon faith. Uh, I kind of grabbed all the material and tried to salvage it, and it didn't work. Um, yeah. I mean, much sense. like a tick, you're comfortable, so you're trying to dig in and think, okay, it's it's me, it's not the actual theology itself. Yep, that's exactly right. Now, I'm curious. <laughs> I, I know you've got brothers and sisters. Uh, the question is, have any of them wandered away, and what is their perception on you? Well, I have I have 12 brothers and sisters, and, and nine of them are still there and considered, you know, part of the elect. And then I have a, a brother and sister who left like I did and, and are now gone. Um, one of them is a, like a mainstream Christian, and then my younger sister... She's more of a spiritualist, doesn't really, you know, subscribe to any organized religion. The and then only... I have my... Go ahead. I was going to say, my oldest sister left and then went back and then was kicked out. And and now she still attends church, but she's not one of God's elect. So she kind of has to, you know, she stays in a different room during church and they're not allowed to talk to her because we're ostracized once we leave, right? Wow. Jeez. So she's kind of in a no man's land. The only other Phelps I know of other than Fred Phelps is uh, Shirley Phelps yeah. Roper, I think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, how is she related to you? Is that marriage or is she a sister? No, nope, she's my sister. Uh, she's a year older than me. And then she married uh, Brent Roper. That's why she's got the hyphenated name. She didn't want to give up her Phelps name. Gotcha. Um, and she you know, appears all the time. I, I've seen her on Fox News um, and they they try to trip her up, and uh, I think they just she just eats this stuff up. You know, she takes the persecution that she sees and uh, that she's taken for Christ, and yeah. and uh, you know uh, doesn't miss a beat. Yeah, one of the things that makes them different from a lot of these more extreme organizations is is we were taught from infancy everything that my father believed the Bible taught, all the nuances ad nauseum. I mean, we just heard it over and over and over again. You couldn't live in that situation without knowing intimately the uh, theology that my father taught there. So they, they they know it and they're able to spit it out and respond, but they they're not really capable of a legitimate, intelligent debate about it because there is no debating it. So they have two strategies. First of all, they throw it in your face and yell and scream and repeat it over and over, and they're good at that. Shirley's probably one of the better ones at that. And if that doesn't work, then they start attacking you personally. And those are their basic strategies. Yeah, your your father actually got disbarred um, for some of his personal attacks on a court reporter, I guess. Yeah, well, that yeah that got him disbarred from the state, and then ultimately he went after all of the district judges for that district there near in Kansas. And it's the same they, case, uh, right? What's that? It was the same case. He just couldn't let it go. He kept uh, not, it. not that particular one, no. That was the, he filed a general request to have all the federal judges recluse from all his cases, saying that they were <laughs> they demonstrated uh, uh, prejudice That's... towards him and, and and the other lawyers in that firm. So they took uh, umbrage at that and uh, filed a complaint, and that ultimately led to him being disbarred from the federal court. So he he can't practice law at all now. Not at all, no. You know that it's it's very interesting because you you talk of your sister who is basically ostracized, and it makes me wonder: uh, Do you have any contact with your father now that I guess you are not a chosen one? Nope, 
I don't. I accidentally got on a radio program with him once back in the in the early '90s, and uh, he uh, yelled and screamed and called me names for about 45 seconds, and then they uh, cut it off. <laughs> oh, Jesus! <laughs> That's wow. the last time I had any communication with him. Wow. When did you uh, formally separate? When did you uh, leave the group? I, I left the, the night I turned 18, at midnight. Wow. You'd been waiting for this. Yeah, I had been planning it for a while, and I think at some level my father knew it because he was, he was uh, asking me pretty regularly those final months, um, trying to get me to fess up. And I wasn't about to because I knew how dangerous it was. So went out and bought an old used car and quietly packed up what little stuff I owned and, and hid it in the garage. And then uh, the night of my 18th birthday, I backed the car into the, gr- the driveway and loaded it up and went inside and waited by the the uh, clock at the bottom of the stairs for it to hit midnight. And then I left. Wow. God damn, dude. That, that, uh, that takes a lot of bravery right there. I mean, you were just an 18-year-old kid. And you were basically yeah. casting aside everything you had known up to that point. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was as much bravery as stupidity. I just, I was, <laughs> I knew that I was unsafe there, and I was, there was no way I, I had a life there. And I was, you know, I was afraid of my father. I didn't want to have anything more to do with him. So, what do you mean unsafe? Well, I mean, he, he was so physically violent and so willing to express that. And on top of that, that feeling that that I was doomed to hell anyway there just was no reason for me to be there so both mentally and physically you felt in danger yeah that's right what did you do after that i mean you've got you're 18 years old um you got essentially nothing to your name but an old car and a couple belongings probably just a beater that was going to run out of gas and break down a mile down the road yeah that's pretty much what it was it had had like two spots on the starter that worked so it'd take me half hour to get the car started (laughs) and then it had no compression at all so i would (laughs) if i was on any kind of an incline i couldn't get the car going it was just horrible you know again i was i was 18 and and full of spit and and had all all the uh hope in the world but not a lot of uh intelligence at that point so I ended up spending the first three nights I was after I left. I spent it. I slept in a uh, bathroom at a gas station. Wow! So that kind of gives you an idea of how prepared I was for the world. <laughs> wow! <laughs> That's got to uh, be I, quite the situation you were running away from to uh, to wind up like that. To think yeah. that that's better, right? That, that that's yeah, yeah, and was elated. Right? Yeah. In that position. Yeah. So eventually, you found a job and. Um, I hooked up with my older brother Mark, and uh, went from you know through half a dozen different jobs, and and then he and I eventually we were in St. Louis working for a printing company, and decided to start our own, and we moved back to the Kansas City area and opened a print shop there in, in 1978, I believe, and then eventually moved it out the company out to Southern California and and worked together for nearly 25 years in the printing business. And in all this time, you, you hadn't talked to your da- your dad? Yeah, I mean, every once in a while there would be some minimal contact for one reason or another, but, yeah, not with my father, though, except that one time I mentioned. Is it the when, same with the rest of the family? I mean, uh, not the ones who have, I guess, fallen away, but the ones who are still in it. As far as contact with them? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not allowed to. If I mean, again, there was the occasional encounter. Um, you know, it wasn't like, 
anybody found out, they'd be cut off immediately. But um, as a rule, they weren't allowed to interact or be involved with anyone who left. Right. It's the same for any cult. And, and the Westboro Baptist Church is primarily, if not exclusively, composed of either people who are directly related to Fred Phelps or related by marriage, right? That's right. There is one. Of, there's one family that moved from Florida, this fellow named Steve Drain, who had come there actually to do a documentary about um, the church, and from what he observed there, decided that that was the place and brought his family there. So they're the only family outside of you know, my family or, or their you know, marriage or, or blood. So still pretty small, fairly unpopular church, getting more op- unpopular all the time. Um, yeah. When did he start this whole uh, homosexuality thing. What, how did that, was he always raging against homosexuals or in the fifties and sixties, I guess that was kind of the culture that was a society. Yeah. I mean, he, he believed his theology said that they, you know, homosexuality was a more profound sin than any other, because there were passages in the new Testament that talked about God giving them up to their affections, their vile affections or whatever. So he, he took that to mean that there, there was some sin that you couldn't recover from. So he was very outspoken about homosexuality within that church. But uh, it wasn't until, I think, 1991 is when they actually did their first uh, picket at a local park there in Topeka. And that was um, way beyond when you had already split from them. Yeah, that's right. The same theology, same rhetoric. It was just, you know, a different time. Um, sounds like he just took it from just his family setting and threw it into the limelight at that point. Yeah, I think what, you know, the way I look at that, because, you know, I, I can see a, a longer timeline and from a different perspective. And he was, there was so much violence and, and he was able to push that out on his family and his, his wife uh, up to a certain point. And then he focused it on uh, other lawyers and judges and, and clients out there in the legal world. And then when he lost that ability by being disbarred, you know, that was like in 1989. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, less than two years later, he's out on the street corners infuriating the rest of the community with the pickets. So So there's probably some sort of internal need uh, for either abuse or being abused, it sounds like. Yeah, he he always was in conflict, always had to be fighting something or someone uh, in order to feel alive. That was just what I observed growing up there. Uh, very interesting. And I'm sure the um, the gains in the, the uh, gay civil rights movement in the 70s and 80s uh, spurred that on as well, especially if he had some antipathy or previous uh, disgust with homosexuals uh, for biblical reasons. Yeah. This is actually fascinating to me. I mean, uh, walk us through a day in your childhood. I mean, uh, you speak of indoctrination just how prevalent was this, and how prevalent was this violent nature? Well, yeah, it, it would depend on the day. I mean, it, when we were younger, <coughs> there wasn't as much awareness of the significance of it all. We would just, every Sunday, like clockwork, without fail, we showed up in that pew Sunday morning, come hell or high water. We were there at, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, and then again, 7 o'clock that night, every Sunday for 18 years, and he was... You know, preaching those doctrines and, and the the, uh, the message was constant. You know, there were verses that were written on the board, and we were required to memorize them. We had to memorize the books of the Bible. And then, in addition to that, was this 
you know, the physical violent nature that he had, which he justified from the passages in the Bible that talk about his authority as the father uh, over not only the children, but, but his wife as well. So if he was in a foul mood, then there was this constant, you were always checking the environment when you came into the house to see whether or not it was safe to be there. And if he was raging, then the kids would all congregate into one of the back rooms and stand back there shaking and, you know, terrified that it was going to somehow spill over to one of us. And then, you know, in later years when he, he got into uh, the exercise program and the health craze that he got into, and then when he got suspended from practicing law, then we started selling candy. So a typical day we'd be out at school for, you know, six or seven hours, come home, get back in the car with our candy and go out and sell candy for two or three hours. And then we'd come home from that at, at 9 or 10 o'clock at night and go out and run five or 10 miles around the track. And then we would come home to dinner and there would be, you know, steamed cabbage and little piles of brewer's yeast and bone meal tablets and rosehip tablets. And, and that was our dinner. Oh my! After oh running God. five to 10 miles. Yeah. We used to run marathons. I mean, he, you know, when he, he almost, he, he got in serious health trouble because he was taking drugs while he was going to law school. So his health deteriorated and he, he put on a lot of weight and, passed out one day and they took him to the hospital and that kind of scared him into, you know, focusing on his health again. What kind of and drugs that, was he taking? Well, he was taking uh, amphetamines yeah. to keep him going and then he would get so amped up from those he started taking uh, depressants so he could sleep at night. So, you know, he was constantly either up or down and, and he was just a really foul temper most of the time because of that. So it wasn't... Um, an that that uh, it was just him going through this. When he went through it, the entire family was dragged. That's in. right. Yeah. So when he went through, you know, repairing his health, the entire family went through it, and and there wasn't a whole lot of sense of autonomy among the children. You know, we basically were were his to do what he wanted. And I mean, and you see that today. These kids don't have a choice. They can't say, "No, I don't think I want to go pick it today." Right? They just put right. down a schedule of where you're going to be when, and you better show up there kind of thing, right? Uh, there's no time for a kid to actually be a kid. Yeah, no, not at all. Now, he, um, as long as you can remember, he always had this church. Yeah, well, he started it in 1955, I believe, so that was three years before I was born. Now, what's the hierarchy in the church? I mean, let's say your father actually dies. Who at that point would take over? Well, that's an interesting question, because Shirley, like you mentioned earlier, she's she's the de facto head of this whole program that that we're all subject to all the time right but my father taught us clearly that women were second-class citizens and they weren't you know Eve was deceived in the garden so women were the weaker vessel so they she can't be the leader of that church and when you ask them that question they're going to tell you well God will will anoint someone we'll we'll know when the time comes but what really speaks better to that question, you guys, is this, this belief system that they have, you know, my father taught when I was growing up there, and then it, it showed up about uh, a year and a half ago. I started getting the first signs of where they were in their theology uh, when, when Shirley and a group of them showed up at Obama's inauguration. And they, she flat out said in an interview that Obama is the Antichrist, and his being seated on the throne marks the beginning of a 42-month clock. And they believe in July of, of 2012 that Christ is going to return. They're all going to be uh, raptured. <laughs> and 
And they, they, <laughs> he seriously believes this, you guys. He's been teaching since I was a little kid that he he doesn't believe he's going to die. You know, he talked a lot about uh, the two. Uh, I think Elijah and Enoch were the two men in, in the Bible that were never people? actually died. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they just went away up in a chariot or something. So right. he he thinks. They all think that Christ is going to come back, and none of them are going to ever feel the sting of death. So, so, so that's it's going kind to of cause, a moot question if you look at it from that context right. or from that perspective, well, right? So, there's no need for him to set up a line of succession because exactly. he's going to be he's going to be raptured, and when he actually dies, that's going to cause a massive problem inside that small church. Yes. Yeah, e- either he dies before it, and that's going to freak that whole system out, or uh, 2012 is going to come and go. And they're going to still be here, and that's going to cr- create some serious problems. So, now, did, yeah, I mean, historically speaking, they'll just reinterpret the scriptures or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, they'll come up with some answers, but it's still it's got to create some questions in some people's minds, right? Yeah, yeah. And hasn't didn't you mention earlier that he was saying like two thousand was when Christ was supposed to come back? Yeah, when we were kids, he had worked it out and said it's a funny thing because on the one hand he would point out that verse that says, no man knows when the Son of Man shall return. But then he would turn right around and start speculating on when the Son of Man would, was going to return. <laughs> and he, you know, I don't remember all the math or all of the, the rationale behind it, but as he nuanced through that book of Revelation, he came to the conclusion that it was going to be around the year 2000, 25-year 20, window on either side of that. So, gotcha. you know, 2012 actually puts you near the end of that window. I remember being taught that too uh, when I was growing up that the the Earth w- was going through the seven seals, right? It would you'd have seven thousand years, and the last thousand years was the millennial reign of Christ. So, if the world started six thousand years ago, we're right at the edge. Yeah, that's right. Hey, and it, it's kind of interesting, but there's a part of it that creates a little anxiety for me in that there's a lot of people out there who buy into some notion of end time prophecies or another. And, you know, what happens when a few of them decide that, you know, they're in the right position, they've been anointed, and we've got to make this happen. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and we can end up with some problems as far as, you know, self-fulfilling prophecies. Right? I mean, part of that uh, was responsible for the creation of Israel. That yeah, oh, absolutely. That's exactly the point I'm making. Uh, that is frightening, and another, yet another reason religion isn't just harmless or even beneficial. I mean, this, this can cause yeah. serious, serious problems. I was going to ask you what you think about the recent decisions, uh, because it's, it's kind of gone through the court. Uh, they're picketing these military funerals, and at one point they had a $10 million judgment against them, and then it was reduced to $5 million, and I think it was vacated uh, at the higher level. Um, it hasn't gone up to the Supreme Court yet, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that process. Yeah, they're actually going to have the, uh, the oral arguments on October 6th in the Supreme month. Court. And, you know, I don't... Ultimately, I don't know what side the Supreme Court's going to come down on when it comes to the uh, question of whether the the civil torts that they were charged with were legitimate or whether it was, in fact, a free speech question. Yeah, they were charged with um, willful in infliction of emotional distress. Yeah, and exactly. And I think there were four of them, but that was the big one, intentional infliction of emotional distress. And then the appellate court said, no, this was always a free speech issue, so they never should have even been brought uh, up on those charges. Huh. And that's why they vacated the, the $5,000 award. But what I find, what I think is more interesting about it is when the Supreme Court addresses this, that you know, within their 
decision, they can use language that will forever change the uh, Constitution and, and the laws as it relates to this question of whether it's okay to protest at someone's funeral. Right. And right. I think, you know, what I would like to see happen is that, you know, one way or another, whether they rule in favor of Al Snyder or my family, that they come down, spe- you know, very specifically on whether it's okay to protest at funerals. Gotcha. Because either way they, they decide, it's going to set a precedent. And yeah. so you want as, as narrow a precedent set as possible. Yeah, there are serious yeah. undertones at work here. Yeah. But, I, you know, there's there's nothing in the history of uh, the constitutional law that, that uh, excludes the possibility that they're going to say, uh, you, you can say what you want. You just can't say it then and there. Right, or at a remove of 150 feet, which I think several uh, states have attempted to pass laws providing for. You, you can have your free speech over here. <laughs> I mean, that seems reasonable. Yeah, uh, and, and, and maybe even further away than that, because, I mean, really, folks, we're talking about probably one of the most difficult moments in a person's life when they're burying a loved one. Yeah. It does seem to invite violence. These people are, are in a, a state of emotional duress. Uh, yeah. And then you you have a bunch of antagonistic people shouting who are completely unrelated to your family and are just there uh, to disrupt things. Yeah. It seems to invite violence, and then of course they get settlements uh, and they continue to go. How do they how do they uh, fund themselves? Is it just purely off these lawsuits? Well, no, I, they they don't make enough money off of that. My my understanding from talking to one of my nephews who left uh, is that you know, there always was when I was growing up there the the tithe that, that you were required to pay it wasn't optional. You gave 10% of everything you earned to the church, right? Yeah. Which is but then uh, when they started this picketing campaign, as they will do, they just dictated that it's going to take about 30% of the incomes of everybody within that group Shit. to fund what they're doing. So they all give 30% of their income. Wow. A third? Yeah. So depending on their brackets, a third goes to the government, a third goes to... Fred, and uh, I guess they live off the remaining third. Well, not only that, well, but, my guess is is that they were all raised to bring up as large of a family as they can. I mean, that, that's all yeah. uh, quite the burden on such families. Yeah, and some and some of them are doing quite a lot, you know, quite well for themselves. A lot of them are lawyers, so they make decent money. But think of it also from the perspective that you know they're giving that thirty percent to the church, and so now you get to write that off as a it's charitable, charitable donation, yeah. and then the church doesn't pay any taxes on it. So right. that gives them a decided advantage as far as that goes, too. Gotcha. So it makes their income look a lot lower for tax purposes than it otherwise would. Yeah, and, and makes that dollar go further for them. But, you know, the question going through my head is you pointed out that women are considered inferior, and it's it's astonishing to me that your sister Shirley is in the limelight so much. I mean, uh, the thought that runs through my head is uh, if she's married, why isn't it her husband who's up there speaking? Or uh, why would they uh, allow her to basically become almost the face of this? Well, yeah, and and that's a good question, but... If my father's nothing else, he's a pragmatist, and Shirley was always that person in our family. You know, she would stand at my old man's right hand and 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 carry out whatever dictates he handed down. So she's the natural one. She was always the one looking for that position, and so it's natural for her to take it. Her husband is probably the least likely to take that role. Um, So you know, it's easy. For the old man to use language like, well, you know, they're to be in subjection. They're not to be 
wimps, right? Yeah. And you, it's okay. They, as long as she's not officially the leader of that church, uh, she can pretty much do what she wants as far as leading that, that operation there. I guess I shouldn't sure. have expected anything less from a lawyer, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I was looking at the Westboro Baptist Church webpage, which actually uh-huh. is at www.godhatesfags.com. <laughs> Right. And they, <laughs> Where the fuck got, did uh, they come up with that? That's <laughs> their picket sign. I know that's their picket sign, but that's, uh, I mean, I think they're the only church I've ever heard of who uses such hateful language as now, their address. As their listen. official website. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got some, we've got some numbers at the bottom of the page. They have carried out 44,038 pickets, um, yeah. 789 oh cities. God visited by Westboro Baptist Church. 1,003 weeks that WBC has held daily pickets on the mean streets of doomed America. And um, I, I, I refreshed this at the beginning of the podcast. So far, since this podcast started, 4,389 people uh, have been cast into hell since I loaded the page. Woo-hoo! <laughs> oh, apparently God is responsible for pouring... Two hundred eighteen million four hundred thousand plus gallons of oil into the Gulf. God saved eight people in the flood and killed sixteen billion. billion? Sixteen yeah. billion. Yeah, that's the first time I've ever heard that kind of number for the world population. Then <laughs> they must have been like rabbits back then. That's good. <laughs> and everyone surviving. Sixteen. Yeah. Well, remember they're all living for nine hundred years too, so nobody's that's dying true. back then. <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes saving them for the flood. Yeah, it makes perfect your... sense, especially considering when the Exodus occurred, the population of Egypt was maybe a million. So yeah. that was after the flood, Leighton. Oh, but of course, yeah. got to repopulate after the only saving eight people, um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and start up in what? the civilizations as if nothing happened. Yes. When does your dad put the flood? What did he put a year on it? When did it happen? Oh, I don't recall them talking about the specific year. Uh, you know, I I got to admit I'm surprised about the 16 billion too. I heard that for the first time, you know, within the last three or four months, and thought, well, that doesn't make any freaking sense at all. Yeah, where would right. they get that number? I mean, did God just slap him in the back of the head and he wrote well, it? Down? I'm, I'm sure it's some kind of, uh, you know, one of the things my father used to do is he'd get like uh, some well-known Calvinist preacher, who, you know, who wrote extensively on all of the passages in the Bible, and that would be part of his his study of the Bible. So uh, I'm sure they've got somewhere, someone talks about those, uh, you know, the numerology and the, and the, the uh, timeline of a lot of these events in the Bible. And, you know, they come up with some rationale for it. it that's impressive. Um, apparently God's responsible for the national debt and he, uh, he's responsible for the flood, the tsunami, I think a while back. There's also a God hates Sweden.com. Yep. <laughs> well, they, they got tired of, of, uh, parsing it they finally came up with god hates the world and they just (laughs) everybody's in it that should be their yeah that should be their uh, main website they're mad at sweden because in 1944 homosexuality was legalized in sweden you know in in fighting uh, this i think i should open up a a website that says god is a douchebag and then just link it back to them i mean if god's up there (laughs) creating all these uh, catastrophes I mean, literally, he's he's saving maybe a uh, hundred people and just saying "fuck you" to the rest of the world. God is a douchebag. Dot com. 
Well, it was probably two years ago. Sure, they came out with one of their videos. You know, they're prolific with those videos they produce. And on this video, surely he's doing this voiceover while they have this kind of high school level montage of, of photos of of old America. And she's talking yeah. about how when when America was first formed, that you know God took them up and wrapped them in swaddling cloth and protected them, and and then uh, the filthy inhabitants of America actually thought it would be a good idea to treat gays with a little more respect. So now he's pissed and he's right. you know, killing all of everybody off and causing all these natural disasters. So, so I just, for the fun of it one day, I sat down and I, I picked a date. I think I picked 1970 because that was around the time Stonewall happened in New York and, yep. and the gays started fighting back for their rights. Right. And then I, you know, did all the research I could. I and mean, it certainly wasn't a scientific process, but looked up a lot of different websites and, and calculated all of the deaths by natural disaster or, you know, man-made disasters of any import, right? Yeah. And then I looked up the, the population of America for these different times. And it just doesn't bear out. I mean, God has been far less effective at punishing us since 1970 than he was when he was supposedly on our side. <laughs> he's like this little baby up there throwing a tantrum right he'll throw a tsunami that that hits uh india he'll do floods in pakistan and um it's like uh he's he, he's just mad and killing everybody well he's yeah, just he's, out to he's point really out that subhuman you know if he's pissed off at, at someone over in in oklahoma then he ends up killing five people in pennsylvania and you know, I mean, you think you have a little bit better aim. Uh, it's like, suck it. I, I'm just going to attack them. I mean, <laughs> right. Um, They're closer. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have to get out of my lounge chair to attack them. You, I'd actually have to cross state lines. Yeah. Right, he's getting senile. So take us from your um, getting out of that whole mental um, imprisonment and all that baggage, leaving all that. Indoctrination is what it was into your current post as uh, uh, leader of uh, CFI in your area in Canada. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a sudden shift, right? It was, I mean, there's still a lot of it that I'm uh, unlearning. And, um, you know, I just got to the point where gradually I realized that all of this was as I had thought it was for years. It was just, it's made up. It's, it's men's attempt to try to make sense of the world they live in and, and uh, feel a little bit better about the fact that at some point will cease to exist, and how do we come to terms with that? But when I moved to Canada in late 2005, um, I kind of removed myself from that system that supported uh, the religious ideology that I was immersed in at that time, and was able to just kind of look at it from a distance. And then I actually, what happened is I started reading books that weren't Christian books, um, and that made a huge difference. You know, some of the classes I was taking in college made a huge difference for me. Your dad never let you uh, read books that were outside of Christianity, or did he limit the uh, library books that were available to you? Were you strongly discouraged? How'd that work? Well, you know, I don't know that it was. He didn't uh, forbid it. It just really wasn't an inclination to it. You know, it was part of that whole thought process that the, the rest of the world was evil, and and yeah, there's plenty of that stuff out there. Uh, but don't bother because I can tell you what's wrong with it right now. There's never a and you sense. You kind of get into this notion that that everything other than the Bible is is uh, deliberately evasive of the truth of God. So, 
Well, I mean, not only that, but from the description of your childhood, you were so busy selling candy and running five or ten miles. I mean, when would you have time to actually read a book? Yeah, that's true. And, and yeah, so we were disinclined on, on several levels. But even when I got became an adult, when I was searching for the truth of the Bible, I didn't necessarily go outside of, of mainstream Christianity as far as the material that was out there. And it didn't occur to me till recently that that was the case. It wasn't until, like, I think 2005 or 2004, I came across a book by Michael Shermer called The Science of Good and Evil. And that was really the first time that I had read something that basically said Christianity's got it wrong. So that so it was like a, I'm, I'm looking for answers within the system and never considered looking outside the system. Right. Those limits were essentially self-imposed. What was that? The limits were essentially self-imposed. That you yeah, that's right. Go outside. Actually, that's interesting. When I was, um, uh, you know, dating my wife and we were trying to figure out the whole religion issue, she was really hardcore Mormon. I was more uh, fundamentalist because of my upbringing. Uh, uh-huh. Same thing. My only two living options were the Mormon Church or polygamy, basically fundamentalist. And I didn't even look outside. It didn't even occur to me that Catholicism or Episcopalians or, or Unitarians or anything else even be correct it was either what it was what flavor of mormonism for me yeah and and uh one of the things that occurs to me is as i'm going through this process in my life now is is just how uh many layers and how intricate the um ideas that you're you're raised with are interwoven in all of your thought process and and you catch yourself constantly recognizing assumptions that lead to uh false belief systems that you don't even know you had inside your head until you start examining them. Right. Part of the part of me to this day cannot buy a, a cup of coffee without feeling a twinge of guilt. <laughs> Is that right, hey? Yeah, because they're warming up. Uh, I must be just more rebellious than you are, because I actually enjoy that stuff. It's like, haha, wasn't allowed to do this when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, but I get it. I mean, I don't have the problem with coffee because that wasn't one of our restrictions, but I get it. Some of the other restrictions, hey? It's strange, and you don't know where that's coming from. You think that you, you're done with that. You're not. I'm not sure you ever truly get away from it. Yeah, I think you have to build up. Well, I mean, for me, what I had to do is, is develop a, a very sophisticated uh, cerebral process that, you know, when I start down the road and start feeling the anxiety and all the emotions connected to that situation, I have to talk myself out of it using my brain. Yeah, and it's very much a process. You have to overcome. Now, in your childhood, uh, did you ever have anything you would have considered a spiritual experience? It just occurs to me that uh, if you had experienced anything that you had considered spiritual, it would probably haunt you during uh, this uh, almost logical process you were taking. Yeah. And um, there was a time, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, there was one group that my father thought for a while was uh, you know, part of God's elect, and they, they were from the Indianapolis area. And they would come to our church from time to time, and, and a couple times we went to Indianapolis and had what my father called Bible conferences. Mm-hmm. And one of the times that this guy was, was preaching, I remember I was, I think, 14 years old or something, and he made a rather impassioned call to you know the, the church there to give themselves over to God, which really, when I think about it in retrospect, was in uh, defiance of my father's belief system. But anyway, afterwards, 
my sister Shirley gets up and she's in tears and she comes up to the front of the church and tells my father that she's been saved. And that was kind of how it happened, right? And then my brother John, who's a year younger than me, stands up and is crying too, and he says the same thing. Well, suddenly, for the first time, the salvation of my siblings was going out of order. You know, like my older brother Fred was first saved, then Mark, and right down the line, suddenly they skipped over me, and I wasn't about to have that happen because, again, you know, it was dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I jumped right up and, and ran up to the front and started crying and said I was saved too, right? So, and and I can't say that it was that simple. I mean, there was a lot of emotion uh, attached to that sermon, and um, you know, there was a reason why we were all so emotional. But t- today, I don't attach anything uh, supernatural to that experience at all. You know, there was a lot of of just practical thinking going on there when I went up and told my father that I'd been saved. So I, it really doesn't haunt me today at all, no. Now, at, at the time, did you actually believe that was a spiritual experience, or were you well aware that you just didn't want to get your father's wrath? Um, I think that at, at a fairly superficial level, I had convinced myself that it was real, uh, because as hard as I tried, you know, I would sit for hours, and I would try to communicate with God, and there just wasn't anything there. So I always worked, you know, that was kind of something in the back of my mind all the time, that, you know, what the hell's wrong with me that uh, he's not talking to me? It must be that he hasn't chosen me, that kind of thing, right? Because, yeah. again, that twist on Calvinism makes it uh, look like God's pissed off at me, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I can understand the same thing. Now, Charlie, in, in the Mormon religion... It's uh, believed that if you pray about the truth of the gospel that you get a burning bosom. And uh, I remember as a kid, I was probably, uh, excuse me, I was probably about nine or ten, and uh, I remember actually sitting down with the Book of Mormon, praying really hard, trying to feel something, anything. And, uh, I mean, all around me, all of my brothers and sisters were doing the same thing that yours were, where they were hopping up saying, oh, I got the burning feeling, so on and so forth, and... It's kind of interesting because uh, I didn't really feel anything, but I I tried so hard that I made myself believe I felt something. And I recall actually walking with my mother and looking up at her and saying, Mom, I I know it's true, I got the burning uh, bosom sort of thing. And it's kind of funny because now she throws that back into my face, and uh, your experience reminds me exactly of that. Yeah. Yeah, I had a similar experience, except I got the feeling, I got that burning bosom feeling. Um that's because you were smoking marijuana. It was, it was some uh, uh, Sunday school that my parents were giving me about Joseph Smith going into the Hill Cumorah and finding all these armor and swords and stuff like that from this, this ancient Nephite culture. And so I'm like, wow, this, this must be true. And then I remember watching The Empire Strikes Back and getting that same burning sensation. You know, It was just more of a, man, that's cool type of thing. Excitement. It's a strong emotion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's I, I kind of joke about it when I when I talk to people about that 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 my father used you know several different terms like you know uh, an impression on the heart or he, he used to say you'd feel an unction and I was I tell people that we, I was constantly anxious you know was that an unction or did I just have some heartburn right <laughs> I just don't know what it feels like. <laughs> 
it would be nice if they would just put out a scale where you could plug yourself in and go, nope, that's not spiritual, that's just gas. Yeah. Or some sort of <laughs> exactly. unctometer where you can tell how many unctions you just got. Well, Scientology has an unctometer. You just uh, <laughs> run a current through your body and then, oh, there's a spike. You were thinking there's something just, bad. Yeah, you just spiked. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Nathan, uh, really appreciate uh, you taking your time to sit down and talk to us. Is there anything going on in uh, your branch of the CFI that uh, you want to plug or um, anything? Well, I mean, we've got uh, Michael Shermer's actually here uh, on the 22nd. Really? Um, and he's talking about, you know, how we our brains deceive ourselves. And then all of the candidates for mayor here in Calgary are going to be at that event. And wow. we get to question them on not necessarily what their attitudes are about specific issues, but how they how they think how they make decisions I don't as a think leader. That, that would ever happen in the United States what's that I don't think a similar thing could ever happen in the United States I think it I think it it's kind of interesting I, I don't know what'll come of it but what an interesting idea that they came up with so very fast uh, we're gonna we're gonna be doing that and then we have a a fairly liberal um, Muslim leader coming from Toronto who's going to speak to us in first part of October, so that's we've got probably half impressive. a dozen speakers lined up already. Yeah, that's that's goddamn impressive. That's nice. Yeah. Fantastic. I can't wait for the day that the Phelps clan pickets one of your CFI. Uh... Oh, I'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> they won't let him in Canada, though, guys. Yeah, they're banned from uh, Great Britain. I hadn't heard Canada. Yeah, well, I don't know if you can say they're banned, but when they tried to come up here to picket that kid that got his head cut off, on the Greyhound bus, oh God! Um, the safety uh, minister sent a, a um, memo out to the border patrol said, "Don't let him across." So wow. I could have a hard time getting here anymore. Wow! Huh. So because of their hate speech, is that why they? Yeah, won't? there's different laws up here. You know, they they get themselves in trouble. Excellent. What they're Excellent. doing down there. So God apparently doesn't hate Canada as much as it hates America. Oh yeah, sure he does. I Man, they fly the fly, the Canadian flag upside down all the time. <laughs> uh, this nation wouldn't let us in we hate them god hates them makes sense all right yeah, fantastic thanks again thanks again all right guys thanks very much i had a great time uh, all right thanks Nathan. bye all right well that wraps it up for this week um what do we got next week Layton? well i'm pretty sure it's prop eight we've got some great stuff on prop eight that uh that we're going to be introducing to uh all of you our loyal fans Man, I cannot wait. Prop 8 next week. Bye.